If you would, please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to the Gospel according to Luke. We're going to be in the 18th chapter uh, for the next few minutes, uh, verses 9 through 14. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him in prayer and ask for His aid and assistance. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we come to You asking that you would open our hearts to your word and open your word to our hearts, that we would know what we are to believe about you and also what duty you ask of your people. Father, unless your spirit gives us understanding, these will just be words on a page, and yet your word is food, it is life. So Father, please open our eyes to see the truth. Help us to receive the truth. Help us to put your truth into practice, for that truly glorifies you and does good for our neighbor. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our text today is an immediate follow-up to The Promise of Rest, that series we did from Luke 1, 26-56 in December. Uh, Last Sunday, I appreciate uh, Reverend Carey picking up, as it were, where I left off with resting in God's redeeming work from Galatians 4. But you may remember, uh, as a brief review, back on the first Sunday in December, we looked at resting in God's favor from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. Resting in God's favor. We can't earn acceptance with God. Therefore, we rest in thinking that we have to earn our way to God. And the next week we looked at resting in God's community from chapter 1, verses 39 through 45. Rest from thinking that we have to go through it all alone. And we saw that in the visitation of Mary and Elizabeth. And then two weeks ago we were in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 56, resting in God's power. Resting from thinking that that we can do it in our own strength. Two weeks ago in that passage, it was Mary's hymn of praise, her song of thanksgiving in response to what Elizabeth said and in response to what the Lord was doing in her life. It's the Magnificat where she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Resting in God's power and His power is demonstrated in that as Mary saying, God lifts up the humble, God brings down the proud, and God remembers mercy. God remembers mercy. That was the hymn's climax and conclusion. God keeps His promises. Unlike us, who make promises and break promises, God keeps His promises. In fact, children, what's the Bible? Promises what made, help me out, and promises kept. And one of the promises God keeps is that He remembers mercy. And that's what we will see in our text this morning. God remembers mercy. Now a word about the title, a prayer of thanksgiving that God hates. I would love to take credit for that title, but I was at a conversation with a friend recently and he just remarked to me in reading that passage, he's like, Wow, it seems like God's not too pleased with this prayer, as we will see. 
Now, we are called to pray, and in our prayers, we are to give thanks to God. It's right to give thanks as we, as we uh, confessed in our prayer of what is prayer. And at the end, thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. God is love. Is it not true? Scripture makes that clear. But you know what? There are things that God hates. Things that God hates. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. And listen to these uh, verses. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Well, to that list of six or seven, you can add a prayer that is found in our text. Now, in telling the story of the life and ministry of Jesus, Luke, the writer of the third gospel, likes to tell the story in twos for the purposes of comparison and contrast. For example, two women expecting a baby. We saw that with Elizabeth and Mary. Two old saints waiting for the Messiah, uh, Simeon and Anna. Two sisters welcoming Jesus into their home, Mary and Martha. In particular, Luke likes to compare and contrast how two people respond to God. For example, remember the parable of the prodigal son. There was a man who had two sons. And today's passage, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, two men went up to the temple to pray. Join with me now as I read that passage, Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. He, that is Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now in our text, there are two prayers. Not just two prayers, but two different prayers. They are not different because they are prayed by two different men. Rather, they are fundamentally different at their core. One prayer God hates. The other prayer God loves. One prayer we will see Jesus condemn. 
the other prayer we will see Jesus commend. Well, let's begin first by looking at the intended audience. Verse 9. We can't miss the setup here of Jesus' parable. Now, most all of his parables, Jesus says something like this, the kingdom of God is like, and so he uses something that can be seen to describe something that can't be seen yet physically. But here, Jesus is nonetheless going to paint a picture to illustrate truth. Notice how it begins, he's told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Um, You know, it goes without saying, but think about it. If Jesus told this parable to that particular audience, there indeed must be some people who trusted in themselves, or as one translation puts it, or who are confident of their own righteousness. And notice what's paired. When you are looking up at yourself, so to speak, you're looking down on others. It's a package deal. You think highly of yourself. You therefore think not so well of others. The intended audience, Jesus is going to focus his teaching on those who trusted in themselves. Well, let's continue by looking at the scene from verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray. Well, no surprise here, the temple, the central place of Jewish religious worship. Back in the day of Solomon's dedication of the temple, he made this statement in his prayer of dedication that that God would be pleased to accept the prayers that were made there in the right manner. You can imagine the scene Jesus is describing, two men going up to the temple to pray. No surprise. But as the parable, as the story unfolds, this will be shocking, absolutely shocking to the original hearer, to the original audience. Well, I think we, and I'm speaking of myself, am somewhat numb to the shock. Why? Because we've had 2,000 years of Christianity, 2,000 years of church history, But to the first hearer, the Pharisee would be the good guy. And the tax collector would be the bad guy. But here Jesus will reverse what people were thinking then and surely what some folks are thinking today. Well, let's examine now in some detail the two prayers, the two prayers. And we'll do that for each by considering three things. The man, his prayer, and then the evaluation of Jesus. So the first prayer, verses 11 through 12. The man, a Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. Now remember, to the original audience, this is a good guy. He's a Pharisee. He takes the scriptures seriously. He's devoted. He's he's wanting to please God. You know, Jesus actually says that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, Jesus commends often the Pharisees 
obedience. But of course, he has a lot of things to say as well, especially as he uncovers the heart attitude behind the outward action. And that's what Jesus is doing. The man, he's a Pharisee. He's one of the good guys in the original audience would be tracking right along with Jesus. Yes, he is going up and going to be pleasing to the Lord. But let's listen to his prayer. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The more you think about this prayer, it's not really a prayer, but rather it's an address about himself to God. He's comparing himself with other people. That was his standard. And my friends, he is faithfully, absolutely keeping up with this new standard of righteousness. You know, hypocrisy is pretty damaging, right, in the uh, church, isn't it? You know, saying one thing, doing another, uh, saying this is what you believe, but living completely opposite. But you know what? There's no hypocrisy with the Pharisee. He's really speaking the truth. I am not like other men. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. I'm I'm not even like this tax collector. He he is moral. Nobody's going to get past his morality. He is moral. But not only is he moral, he is religious. Look how his prayer continues. I fast twice a week. Well, what was the requirement in Israel at that day? Once a year. In preparation for the Day of Atonement. He's doing it twice a week. Of course he's going to do it once a year. He's religious. He ties everything he gets. He gives a tenth back to the Lord of everything he gets. He is moral. He is religious. And not only is he moral and religious, notice how the prayer begins. He is grateful. I thank God. I thank you. He's moral. He's religious. And he's grateful. God gets credit, in other words. Well, let's look at the evaluation of Jesus. And you need to jump with me down to verse 15. Excuse me, verse um, 14. In a moment, we're going to look at the tax collector, but uh, Jesus says in verse 14, I tell you, this man, that is the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. Jesus is saying, based on that prayer, which reveals the heart of the man, that that man, that Pharisee, is not declared right with God. Why? He's trusting in himself. He's trusting in his own righteousness. J.C. Ryle, the great Anglican bishop of the 19th century, said this, We are all naturally self-righteous. It is the family disease of all the children of Adam. From the highest to the lowest, we think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. We secretly flatter ourselves that we are not as bad as some and that we have something to merit the favor of God. This Pharisee, his prayer is condemned by Jesus. Notice when Jesus says 
what he says. He says at the beginning of verse 14, I tell you. That doesn't need to be in the text. But it's there for emphasis. Because Jesus is speaking, he could just say, this man went down to the house. But, but no, he says, I tell you. In other words, pay attention. What I'm saying is important. The Pharisee went home, not justified. Well, that's the first prayer found in our text. It's a prayer that God hates. It's a prayer that Jesus condemns. Well, let's now take a look at the second prayer. And notice verse 13 begins with but. But is an extremely important word in the scripture. And here we see it setting up the contrast. The second prayer, verse 13. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The man, he's a tax collector. Were y'all here the last Sunday of, of November? What a great message from the RUF campus minister at the University of Louisville. Remember, it was Jesus goes to a party from Matthew chapter 9. And his two points were Jesus' relationship to the bad folks and Jesus' relationship to the good folks. And remember how it concluded that God desires mercy, not sacrifice, right? Remember that both the good guys and the bad guys, the good folks and the bad folks, were alike in needing the mercy of God. Remember how that tax collector, when Jesus went to his home, how the religious leaders looked down upon Jesus for doing that. This tax collector is a collaborator with the Romans. He's skimming off the top. He's, a, he's probably wealthy He's an outsider. Again, the initial audience would see the tax collector as the bad guy. And how does this man evaluate himself? What does he say? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, it's interesting. I spent some time back in the original language of Greek. And a few translations... Translate it, and I believe correctly, because there's a definite article. The sinner. In other words, this is a good translation, it's fine, but God be merciful to me, the sinner. You see, unlike the Pharisee who's looking around horizontally at how he's better than others, the sinner, excuse me, the, the, the tax collector doesn't even notice anybody else. He's not concerned about this person's sin or that person's sin. He's concerned about his sin. And therefore, he can say, God, have mercy on me, not just one sinner among many, but the sinner. Years ago, when I served in the, uh, on the Navigators, U.S. military ministry staff in Texas, Virginia and Texas, I got to know an, a man by the name of Paul Drake in San Diego, California, Paul um, is in his 90s now. I knew him when he was in his 70s. Paul loved the Lord. And if you can imagine a 70-year-old former enlisted Marine 
sharing Christ in the San Diego area. And, and we would see each other at conferences and you'd ask Paul, hey Paul, how are you doing? And Paul's response was, better than I deserve. And you would say, Paul, no, you deserve this. I mean, you are a faithful follower of Jesus. You are a United States Marine. You, you've served with the navigators. You've been faithful to your wife and children. You deserve a good life. And he would look at you square in the eyes and say, I deserve hell. My friends, Paul Drake knew the mercy of God. Paul Drake knew the rescue of God. This sinner, this tax collector, is pleading for the mercy. His prayer is this. Have mercy, God. Do you realize that the tax collector had a better understanding of sin than the Pharisee? Y'all realize that? The tax collector understood that if his sin was not forgiven, if something wasn't dealt with, with at the heart of his sin, then he was in big trouble. He pleaded for mercy. Jesus, quoting the Old Testament in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, says this about the temple. My house shall be a house of prayer for all people. My friends, the temple was a house of prayer for even the tax collector. The tax collector begs for mercy. He pleads for mercy. Um, I was born in the summer of 1966. And when I was born, there was a, a song on the radio by the Temptations. And it's, you know the title, Ain't Too Proud to Beg. Right? Ain't Too Proud to Beg. And that's a man wanting the affection of a woman. That will come and go and that certainly won't last. Here is this tax collector begging for mercy. And my friends, he ain't too proud to beg. Remember the two thieves on either side of Jesus at his crucifixion. One scoffed at Jesus, the other asked Jesus to remember him. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. You see, that, that sinner who understood sin, but also the mercy of God, with absolutely no merit of his own, that unnamed criminal clings to mercy alone. Well, what's Jesus' evaluation? We see that at the beginning of verse 14. Again, for emphasis, I tell you, this man, that is the tax collector, the one who begged, who pleaded for mercy, went down to his house justified. In commenting on verse 14, John Calvin, I believe, proves to be helpful when he says this. This man went home justified. The comparison between these two men is not exact, for Christ does not merely assign to the tax collector a certain degree of superiority, as if righteousness had belonged alike to both, but means that the tax collector was accepted by God, while the Pharisee was totally rejected. And this passage shows plainly what is the strict meaning of the word justified. It means to stand before God as if we were righteous. For it is not said that the tax collector was justified because he suddenly acquired some new quality, but that he obtained grace 
because his guilt was blotted out and his sins were washed away. Hence it follows that righteousness consists in the forgiveness of sins. As the virtues of the Pharisees was defiled and polluted by unfounded confidence so that his integrity, which deserved commendation before the world, was of no value in the sight of God. So the tax collector, relying on no merit of works, obtained righteousness solely by imploring pardon because he had no other ground of hope than the pure mercy of God. Well, that's the second prayer found in our text. It's a prayer that God loves. It's a prayer that Jesus commends. And remember when Paul writes the church in Corinth this, For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. I have to think Paul might be thinking of this teaching of Jesus when he wrote that. Jesus commends the man who asks for mercy. He condemns the man who doesn't. Now let's spend a few moments looking at the general principle found at the end of verse 14. Remember, Jesus three times announced His upcoming death and resurrection. And we saw that in Mark chapter 8, 9, and 10. But three times Jesus says, this in Matthew 23:12 Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That was when Jesus pronounced woes on the scribes and Pharisees. And then in Luke 14, just a few chapters earlier, in the parable of the wedding feast, he ends, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And here in our text For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exhausted. Kids, when somebody like your parents says something three times, do you think that's important? This is bold. This is highlighted. This is... Jesus says this three times. And the apostles say it. James and Peter... Both quote an Old Testament passage. They say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And Peter continues, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, He may exalt you. So my friends, here's the question for us today. Can you say it? Can you say it? Can you say, I am a sinner in need of God's mercy and grace? Remember what we sang at the beginning? Thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song. Is God's mercy the theme of your life or a theme? Is it in there anywhere? Paul writes the Romans, Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? My friends, it's not the threats of God that really 
change us, is it? No. It may give us some outward behavioral change. It is the mercy of God. It is the kindness of God. It is the patience of God that leads us to repentance, to godly grief that produces repentance leading to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief, as Paul writes the Corinthians, produces death. Some of you were visitors once to this church, and you may have, um, actually all of you visited the first time once, and if you picked up a a folder, uh, a visitor's welcome and information folder, there's an article in there by the late James Montgomery Boyce, pastor of 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, entitled, Repenting Always. And I want us to listen to this last paragraph of this one article that's important enough to go into the visitor's welcome and information folder. Here's what Boyce says. Another friend of mine says that the trouble with Christians is they do not believe that they are sinners. But we are. And unless we know it and confess it, we will never be much use to a world that needs not so much the evidence of righteousness in us, which they can copy by their own fleshly efforts, as they need us to be living demonstrations of God's grace, which they need but cannot copy. People who know they are sinners, who confess it, and who depend on God's grace will live increasingly holy lives. But they will be hardly aware of it, and they will certainly not be talking about it all the time. They will be too busy marveling at the mercies of our God and concerned that others might come to know Him also. My friends, if, if you think that what separates you from others is that there is some goodness in you, That leads to pride and arrogance. But if you think that the only thing that separates you from someone else is that you have received the mercy of God, then it will be hard, if not impossible, for you to look down on others. It will lead to compassion that others know and experience the mercy of God as you have as well. Well, we've considered two prayers and one general principle. Let's conclude with two statements. First, our text presents a warning. Listen, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Warning. Warning. My friends... Warnings are evidence of the mercy of God. Could you imagine having to stand before him at the end, not having been given the truth ahead of time? It's not only a warning, but it's a promise. Look how it continues. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. My friends, just as Jesus humbled himself only to be exalted by his Father at the resurrection, so also all who humble themselves before him now will be exalted in due time. There will be no better words to hear. We hear now Jesus say, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I'll give you rest. And then we will hear words one day, 
Well done, good and faithful servant. My friends, if you haven't figured it out already, it is humbling to ask for mercy. It is humbling to plead for mercy. It is worldly embarrassing to plead for mercy. But you know what? That is the point. It is humbling to beg for mercy. But my friends, as I hope we've seen, this is a prayer that God, I'll say it carefully, cannot but answer. You look at the scripture, anytime somebody begs for mercy, they get it. If any of you out here right now need the mercy of God, need to be not treated as your sins deserve, ask Him for His mercy. The church is nothing more than a collection of people, all kinds of people who have received and are living in the mercy of God. So as believers, we always have before us two significant needs, a humble realization of our own sinfulness and a humble, grateful recognition of God's grace. As we look back at the year 2018, thank God for His mercy. And as we look ahead for all of the unknowns of 2019, let's ask God for His mercy. Christian, don't be too proud to beg for God's mercy. The prayer for mercy is a prayer that God loves. And when you receive His mercy... You'll return home to your house knowing that your sins have been forgiven. You are justified before a holy, righteous God and you are headed to an eternal home where there's no more sorrow or death or disease or relationship conflict or want. Let's pray. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we have come into your presence this morning and we are humbled, for we have seen your glory revealed in your word. And Father, as we examine our lives, we confess that we often maintain the attitude of placing our confidence in ourselves and of looking down on others. We so often place our trust and hope in our works and merit as being the means of obtaining and maintaining a right relationship with you. Oh, Father, we admit that we have sinned and fall short of your glory. Even our best works are tainted by sin. Our hearts are deceitful. Who can understand them? Oh, Lord, have mercy on us. We come to you as the sinner not looking for how we stand relative to those around us, but rather how we stand relative to your holiness and perfection. We praise you and thank you, Lord, for your abundant mercy poured out in the person and through the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, your word is indeed a two-edged sword, for it both wounds and heals. And we praise you for the wounding and healing it has done this very day. Heavenly Father, we thank you for declaring through your word that since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with you through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, more than words can express, we are grateful for the salvation that is ours only 
through your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.